Our sermon text for this evening comes from the book of Luke, I'm sorry, the book of Acts, chapter 16, verses 11 and 15. Hear the word of God. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And that is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessings to the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of his word. And all the church says, let us pray together. Oh God, it is our prayer as we draw near to hear your word, that your spirit will illumine our hearts, grant us understanding and insight into the things of God, and give us the grace to trust and obey the Lord Jesus Christ in all things. In his name we pray. Amen. In an article on WebMD, I learned about the surprising effects of lack of sleep. The article mentions things like accidents and slower mental processing, heart disease, heart attacks, heart failure, irregular heartbeats, depression, memory loss, weight gain, and increase of death. And in light of that article, I have a confession to make, that I have developed a terrible habit of snoring. Perhaps it's even a vice, a terrible problem of snoring, which affects Shannon's sleep. It disturbs her through the course of the night. And so as I put together that experience of snoring and her inability to sleep, and what I learned in this article, according to WebMD, my snoring is literally killing my wife. It is bringing her to the brink of death, or at least increasing her risk of death, as she does not get much sleep. And it is that lack of sleep and that lack of rest that is... Uh, troubling her and perhaps even troubling me. And maybe some of you can relate to that experience. Now I say all of that to say that we need better sleep. My wife and I need better sleep. You all need better sleep. And as the scriptures say, more importantly, what we all need is rest. We need rest. Rest can come to us through sleep, but rest can come to us in other ways as well. 
And you see at the heart of this story in Acts 16 that there is a hint that the Apostle Paul and his co-worker Silas, along with some women of the city of Philippi, on the Sabbath day went out to the riverside. They are observing the Sabbath. They are seeking rest on this day of rest. The scriptures say that Paul and Silas went outside the gate down by the river to pray and mentioned specifically it was the Sabbath day. Now, why would they go outside the gate on the Sabbath day, which is a day of rest? Well, they went outside the gate down to the river because there was no synagogue in Philippi. This is Luke's way of saying there's no synagogue in Philippi. And so they went down looking for a place where they could gather together and pray. And the scriptures tell us that they came across some women down there who perhaps were doing the same kind of thing. Now, if you were here last week and you heard about the discussion at the Jerusalem Council and how the Pharisees wanted the Gentile Christians to keep the law of Moses, you might be a little confused or a little concerned about Paul in in this story as he is observing the Sabbath. But I want to be clear here that Paul was observing the Sabbath, but not the way the Pharisees and the legalists would do it. They would observe the Sabbath as a way of meriting or earning their salvation, of a way of getting in good with God and making themselves right with Him. But Paul is observing the Sabbath as a baptized Christian in light of the gospel. He is simply resting and worshiping on this day that God has given us. So I want you to remember something about the Sabbath as we move through the story. I want you to remember that the Sabbath is actually God's gift to you. It is a gift of grace for you. It is grace for resting your body and for refreshing your soul. It is grace for remembering both the creative works of God and the redemptive works of God. It is grace for renewing covenant as we are doing even now. It is grace for rejoicing in worship. It is grace for relieving the sick, the poor, and the lonely. It is also grace for repenting our sins. So we might say these are the R's of Sabbath keeping. Unlike our culture, we do not want to worship rest or worship recreations. Rather, we should worship the Lord who gives both rest and recreates all things. What some consider to be a total waste of time, we consider to be a way of redeeming the time. So Paul and Silas on the Sabbath go outside the city gates down by the river to pray. And they come across this group of women who have also gathered together. Now, Luke doesn't tell us much about those women other than the fact that they are they've come together. We don't know why they were there. Maybe they were on a picnic. Maybe they were getting away from their families for a bit, taking a break, going to a place to find some peace and quiet. That's often why we go to rivers or to other uh, places of natural beauty. We want to go and get away from it all for a moment and collect our thoughts and sort of regather ourselves. And so maybe they were doing the same. But you see Paul and Silas 
began to do with these women what Jesus had done in Samaria at the well. They sat down and they spoke with the women about the things of God. Now, we live in a time when men and women talk to each other all the time out in public. You bump into someone, or whether you know them or not, you can have a conversation with someone of the opposite sex, and no one thinks the worst of it. But in their day, they might have thought something of it. They might have thought, what are these men doing talking to these women outside the gate in that secluded place down by the river? Well, Luke tells us that they're talking about the things of God. And he tells us specifically about one of the women, uh, one of the women in that group and describes her in this way. That she was actually an outsider to Thyatira. She wasn't from Philippi. She wasn't a citizen of that city. She came from another place far away in a different part of the empire. But she had moved to this place to conduct business, which leads me to the second thing. She is described as a business owner or as a saleswoman. She is somebody who is on top of her game. She is a seller of purple goods. And if you know anything about the ancient world, you know that she is moving some pretty expensive items here. She is marketing. She's in the marketplace. She's moving this purple uh, cloth because this purple cloth was used in the among the royals in Rome, and it was used in all the colonial cities, and so there was high demand for it. If you had purple and you wore purple, you were in fact saying. We're in the upper crust of the, of the Roman Empire, and we have the means to acquire this. And so the fact that she's selling these purple goods probably meant that she was someone who was a woman of means. There was great demand for this colorful fabric because it was the official toga, the color of the official toga of Rome and the Roman colonies. By the way, Uh, You kids might find this to be interesting. Your parents might as well, but you little kids, check this out. They got the colorful dye, purple, from gathering up snails out of the sea, and they would boil, they would have to kill the snails in some way, but they would boil the snails and extract from them the part of the snail that they could use to make the purple dye. And so it took a lot of effort to gather those snails and go through the process of making the purple dye. And that's one reason it was so expensive. If you are wearing purple or you ever see the color purple in your day, it did not come from snails. It was made by man. It's fake. It's a fake. It's a synthetic uh, color now. But in their day, it was much more difficult to come by. Purple also had a use in biblical imagery, biblical times. And so if you go back to the Old Testament, one of the interesting things you find is there is actually a connection between women and purple in the Old Testament. And I think Luke is hinting at that here. I don't think he's as concerned about what's happening in the, in the Roman culture, but he's showing us what happens in the biblical world. For example, in the Old Testament, we read the scripture before the sermon. We learned that every skillful woman spun with her hands and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. And they used this for liturgical purposes, for the purposes of making things in the tabernacle and in the temple, curtains and designs. And so it was a way of saying purple is sort of like a divine color along with blue and red. 
So very important, but interesting to see the connection between women and purple. So what we find about this woman also is not only is she a businesswoman and a mover of purple and probably doing very well for herself in Philippi, we also learn that she is a worshiper of God. And a more accurate way to describe that is she was a God-fearing woman. She didn't know the Lord Jesus Christ yet, but she was a God-fearing woman. And that gives us a clue as to what she was doing out by the riverside. Maybe she had gathered with some of her friends for the purpose of prayer and meditation. And then she bumped into these missionaries who had come her way. We also learn about her that she was the head of her household. The head of her household. And I got to tell you, for many years, I sort of glossed over that and moved on. But if you stop and think about it, it's so rare. It's so rare, especially in the in the biblical world, to have a woman mentioned as the head of her household, because it was more customary to mention the man as the head of the household. What is Luke telling us about Lydia as we read this? She is the head of her household. Here's what it means. It could mean a couple of different things. Luke doesn't tell us, so we kind of have to try to connect the dots and piece it together. It could mean that this is a woman who had never, ever been married in her life. Maybe she was not interested in marriage and just devoted herself to business, and that's what she's about. It could also mean that she was married at one time and has, yet, has since become a widow. And now that she is a widow, she is the head of the house due to the death of her husband. It might also mean that she is a woman who had been divorced, perhaps abandoned by her husband or put away in some sense. Or maybe she put him away. But the point is, somehow she has become the head of her household. And if that is the case, that she is the head of a household, and if she had children in her household and servants in her household, I got to tell you, if anyone ever needed a day of rest and worship, it was her. It's a single mom trying to make ends meet and trying to keep things together, provide for her kids and do what she can for her family. Some of you know what that's like. Some of you know people who know what that's like. And what I want you to hear is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is for you. The promise and grace of God's rest is for you. Sometimes we give the impression in the church, and we don't mean to do this, but sometimes we give the impression that the Christian faith and the gospel of Jesus is for families who more or less have it together. Right? They're the nuclear family, the typical ordinary family that everyone expects to see, but that's not what we see here. We see here a woman who's working hard to make ends meet for her family and seems to be doing very well. We see a woman who is taking care of business and taking care of her household and seems to be doing a very good job at it. I couldn't help as I reflected on this story and thought about Lydia and let my imagination kind of run wild a little bit. But I started thinking that she reminds me of the woman we read about in Proverbs 31. It might surprise you, but listen to some things said about this excellent wife or this excellent woman, this woman of noble character. This is what Proverbs 31 says and see how well it matches up with Lydia. 
She dresses herself with strength and she makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchants. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gate. As she came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, these are the things she would learn from the scriptures about women like her. Isn't that beautiful? I hope it's beautiful to you men, but especially to you women to see that the gospel goes out and God takes concern for all these little details of our lives, doesn't he? The interesting thing here is she was listening to Paul. She listened to what he had to say. And if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, you know that Paul was preaching about Jesus. And I don't mean he was standing up like I'm doing down by the river preaching a sermon about Jesus. But get in your minds the the image here of Paul and Silas and these women sitting around, perhaps on a grassy slope near the river, the water flowing by, the wind blowing through the trees. They found a nice little patch of shade to keep them out of the sun. And Paul begins to talk about the Lord Jesus and tell the story about the God-man who came into the world and suffered and gave his life for his people. And as he was telling this story, Luke tells us that the Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now, keep in mind, there were other people hearing. There were other people hearing what Paul said, but... Luke specifies that the Lord opened Lydia's heart to receive the word. The Lord showed special grace and special mercy to Lydia for reasons we will never know. But he did. He opened her heart to receive the word of Paul. Or as as it says, to take heed and pay close attention to what Paul said. Now she was already a God-fearer. She's a God-fearer. And now the Lord uses her fear of God to lead her to wisdom. For the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And now he opens her heart to hear what Paul has to say. And I want you to think about the word open there because we might say, well, what does that actually mean? I mean, this is, uh, and some people say, this is open heart surgery. You know, like her heart was a steel trap and, and God ripped it apart so she could hear. But that's not the image you should have in mind. The image is this. If you go back to the Gospel of Luke, the same word is used in Luke's Gospel to describe a variety of things like Jesus opening the eyes of the blind. It's used of Jesus opening the Scriptures to His followers so that they could see things that had always been there, but they had been blind to them. It's also about Jesus opening the minds of His followers so that they could understand the things that they knew. You know how sometimes you know more than you understand? You know how to use a smartphone, but you don't really understand how the thing works. 
Well, you know how to read the Bible, but sometimes you don't understand everything in it. Jesus opened their minds. And here a woman is listening to Paul tell the story of the gospel. And the Lord opened her heart so that she would pay close attention to what was said by Paul. Now, this troubles some people. This passage actually troubles some professing Christians. A couple of weeks ago, I was having dinner with a Roman Catholic friend of mine, a delightful young man, and we were having a conversation about these things and along these lines. And he told me that when he was younger and exploring the various traditions of the Christian faith, and he started thinking about uh, the Reformed tradition, Presbyterians, he had in his mind that, as he said to me, I had in my mind that you guys believe that God was like a puppet master, right? Right. <laughs> Uh, moving people around as if they were uh, puppets on a string. And I said, no, it's not that way at all. We're trying to make sense of passages like this, that people hear the word of God and people are blinded to things by sin. And sin has affected the way we think about the world and it's affected our hearts and, and our will and all these things. So how do we explain why some people hear the gospel and never believe and other people hear the gospel and then suddenly believe? And we're trying to make sense of that by saying, well, here's a clue. The Lord opens the hearts of some people. Now, it doesn't mean that the Lord never opened the hearts of the other women who were there. Does it mean that, you know, two days later or a month later or a year later, they didn't come to faith? We're just simply talking about what happened in that moment. And the reason it's important to think about this is because we want to give God all the glory for when we turn from our sins and trust in Jesus. In other words, we don't want to say, yes, I was listening to a preacher and I was smart enough and I was wise enough to see where it was going. And I made a decision to do the right thing. And so to me, be some of the glory and God gets all the rest. We're trying to avoid that kind of thing. We're saying, no, salvation is by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ And more to the point, we're saying that grace gets you started, grace keeps you going, and grace brings you to the end. So it's all of grace from start to finish. Unlike some Christian traditions that will say grace gets you started, but works get you finished. And that's not what we're promoting. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul said. The technical term we use in our circles, some insider language, is effectual calling. It was effectual because God made it effectual in her life. Now again, he might have done it for other of those women later on, as he did for other people in Philippi later on. But we're just looking at the beautiful thing the Lord did for this woman in that moment. So not only did she get rest on the Sabbath down by the riverside, but now she gets rest for her soul because God has granted her grace to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. The scriptures say that after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged Paul and Silas to come and stay at her house. All of you have been baptized. And you little children have been baptized. And we practice the kind of baptism we do for adults and children because of stories like this one. 
Here you have a woman who heard the gospel. The Lord opened her heart to receive Christ by faith. She was baptized and then she brought her whole household, however many there were, whoever was living with her, they all were baptized as well in solidarity and in in unity with the head of their household. So it's like Lydia was saying to her family, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And she was the first one to be baptized and then everyone else in her household as well. And in those days, a household included not just the, uh, the adults. They weren't the only ones counted. It also included the children. It also included any servants who lived there on a permanent basis. So everyone in the household was, was baptized. Recently, I was invited to be a part of uh, a committee in Mesquite, a committee to take the census coming up next year. And they were carefully explaining that when we do the census, we need to make it clear to people we talk to that everyone in the household gets included on the, the format, on the documents that they are collecting to number every person in the house. Very important. And we understand that kind of thing when we're talking about societies and communities and nations. But many people get very nervous when we're talking about the Christian church. Well, what is God doing in Philippi? What is God doing through Paul and Silas with Lydia and her household? He is establishing there a colony of heaven. They're a colony of Rome, but within that colony of Rome, God is establishing a colony of heaven. And when he comes to take the census, people on that census will include Lydia and all the members of her household. They they are now members of Jesus Christ and his church. So the interesting thing here is this is not something new. This is actually something that the prophets told the people of God. God spoke through the prophets and said, I will take you out of the nations. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. And Lydia experienced the fulfillment of that prophecy in her own life as God kept his word and fulfilled his promises for her. That's why she was baptized when she was and how she was. The prophets also said, God speaking through them, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. When we read that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul said, this was not some new thing. Luke wasn't just making it up. He was echoing what God had said through the prophets. It's another way of saying God gave Lydia a new heart. Instead of a heart that was closed, instead of a heart that uh, was not open, he gave her a heart that was open and open enough to receive what the Lord was planting in her. So do you see that? You see the beauty of God's grace and truth working through Paul into the life of this woman. Well, notice what she said here. If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. I mean, this is a woman who knows how to drive a hard bargain. This gives you some insight into the way she was uh, conducting her business affairs, right? If you have judged me faithful, come, uh, come to my house. And so she invited them. Wherever they had been staying for the last several days, she now invites them off of the streets and gives them shelter and a place to stay as they continue their, uh, their work in this city. 
And so her house becomes uh, home base for the gospel mission in Philippi. So it's a beautiful story of how God brings people together from different places at different times and forms them into a community. And so we ask as we get to the end of this, so what? You know, what, what is all this about anyway? Well, what you're seeing here is that as the gospel goes out to the ends of the earth, it goes to women and children. It goes to servants and masters. It goes to widows and single moms. It goes to people of, at all levels of society. It goes all over the place wherever the Spirit of God takes the gospel and brings it to bear on the life of people. God truly shows no partiality or favoritism. And this is just another example of that, of what we've seen throughout the, uh, the book of Acts. Well, I want to I highlight something for you here. One reason this is so important as, as I think through the passage is throughout the Old Testament, God makes it clear that He is a God who dwells with people on the margins of life. He's not a God who's always dwelling with the movers and shakers. He does do that, but He is a God who is known to dwell among the widows and the orphans, the aliens and the strangers. And we see that so clearly in this passage, don't we? Because it's likely that Lydia was a widow. It's likely that we see her as a stranger coming from outside to Philippi. And so the truth of that is brought to bear on her life. And God dwells there. I want us to be a people who don't overlook those on the margins. Who don't forget about the widows. Who don't forget about those on the edge. Those who have been marginalized. That is where God works as He takes the gospel to the ends of the earth. Just a couple of days ago, I went to visit a friend of mine who is, uh, she is a widow. And she struggles with a a variety of health concerns. And I was teasing her when I went to visit because we talk about all kinds of things, but I went to ask her advice. She didn't know this, but I went to ask her advice about a situation. And she said, why are you asking me? And I said, because you're like the oracle, right? Right. She is so wise in many ways, and and she'll tell you straight up what she thinks about things. And so you need people like that in your life. And as I left her residence over um, over near White Rock Lake, I thought as I drove away, my life would be so poor without her. I would be at a loss in some ways without the counsel she has given. I wouldn't have been able to accomplish some of the things in my life that I've been able to do, except she has been so kind and generous to me. And so I thank God for her. And then I was thinking about Lydia and thinking about the ways that God used this woman, whether she was a widow or not, whether she was a single mother or not, we don't know, but he used this woman and her kindness and generosity to advance the gospel in Philippi. And it's a beautiful thing for us to see. So I hope you find some encouragement in that. And I hope that as you think about these people who might seem uh, less important to you than perhaps some other people in the scriptures, I hope you'll see that they are actually very important for God has called them to himself just as he's called you to himself by his spirit and his gospel for his glory and for your good. Let us pray together.